Before he leaves to this podcast, Marcus wants to share the following Wellness Summit blooper with you. Damo, this is ridiculous. When we recently closed two-for-one ticket sales to the summit, we left the two-for-one banner on our website saying, get your two-for-one tickets. How do you think that's gone down with our loyal listeners? People are jumping online to buy two-for-one tickets, but our system has shut them down. Oh dear, Marcus. So let's do this, MP. As our way to thank our listeners for their patience and to apologize for our feeble technology troubles, let's release 100 more seats at two-for-one. Let's do 50 double passes at the two-for-one rate. But Damo, we were just about to raise the price by 50 bucks a ticket. I know, MP, but I'm pulling rank. For one week only, Wellness Council listeners, you have one more chance to come to the summit at half price. Two days at the Melbourne Convention Exhibition Centre on September 10 and 11. That's 16 hours of powerhouse wellness at less than $10 per hour. You're so generous, Damo. This offer strictly expires at 11.59pm on Sunday, May 8th, so don't delay. To register for one of only 50 double passes, go to thewellnesssummit.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to The Healthy Shift Worker with your host, Audra Starkey. Hello and welcome to The Healthy Shift Worker podcast. My name is Audra Starkey and I'm here to help you to manage some of the toughest challenges we faced whilst working 24-7. Today's topic is all about managing stress, anxiety and depression, both in and out of the workplace, which I think many shift workers will be able to relate to in some way, shape or form. And to talk more about this really important topic, and at times quite emotional topic, I've got Carrie Thompson-Casey from the Sunshine Coast as our guest speaker today. Carrie is a wife and mother of two, including a mother to a very super cool furry cat by the name of Leo, and is a clinical psychologist who has spent over 20 years working in various mental health settings. She's a highly sought-after speaker, having presented at various training events and workshops around the country, including one of the biggest wellness events in Australia, the annual Wellness Summit in Melbourne. Carrie is also the founder of the ever-popular podcast, The Abnormal Psychologist, and if all that doesn't keep her busy enough, she's also studying naturopathy and nutrition. So to tell us more about managing stress, anxiety and depression, both in and out of the workplace, I'd love to give a warm, healthy shift worker welcome to Carrie. Welcome. Oh, hi, Audra. That's an amazing <laughs> intro. Thank you so much. That's lovely. You're welcome. You're welcome. I nearly had to um, keep going on to the next page because I could write so much <laughs> about you. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's great to actually have you on, on the show, um, Carrie. It's, um, it actually feels a little surreal, I guess, um, having you here because we actually met over a year ago um, did, at yes. one of your workshops in Brisbane. So time really does fly. <laughs> it does. And it's so great to see the amazing work that you're doing in spreading the word with shift workers because you've also been a very valued guest on The Abnormal Psychologist, sharing your amazing insights into the health and well-being of shift workers. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet. <laughs> um, before um I guess I'm really looking forward to our interview today, Carrie, because stress, anxiety and depression is so prevalent in, in society today. And of course, that's in various degrees and forms. But when you combine sleep deprivation into the mix, which is a big part of the shift working lifestyle, the impacts of these conditions can become amplified and making it even harder to manage. And I guess in some ways it becomes like a vicious cycle where people can feel as though they're trapped and unable to find a way to cope. Would this be right? Yes, like I, I think it's probably important to understand the difference between stress, anxiety, and depression. Mm -hmm. So, so depression. Let's start there. So, depression's more your low mood, 
loss of interest. There might be changes in weight, weight loss or weight gain, a feeling of fatigue, and that's persistent over time. So that sort of low mood and loss of interest in things. Whereas anxiety is that constant worry, that internal chatter, that what ifing, and often there's physiological symptoms as well. So shakiness, feeling shaky or nauseous, um, particularly tension in the body, perhaps headaches or neck pains. And stress is different again. And that is demands placed on us that we feel that we're not quite sure we're resourced to cope with those. And and I think that's possibly where shift work has such a high prevalence of mental health issues is because you can see why each of those three areas would be affected by somebody who's not sleeping as well as they should or perhaps not sleeping in those circadian rhythms, not eating at designated times, um, perhaps not perhaps missing out on social contact, you know, um, all the things that I'm sure that you share across episodes of the podcast. So you can see how each of those could be affected. But in terms of depression, we would look at the persistence of those symptoms over a period of time. Similar to anxiety, we would, we would look for a persistence of those anxious symptoms over time and a level of disability. So it would start to impact uh, work performance or social performance um, and stress would be, again, that amplification, as you said, that um, added pressure or demand placed on the individual. So I hope that answers your question. It sort of took me a long way to get there in the end. Yeah, no, that's yeah, no, that's that's great, isn't it? Um, but to distinguish between the three, as you said, they are very, very different, and we and each and each of us can experience them in different forms. And some people can be feel, I guess, senses of depression, but they're not actually clinically diagnosed as depressed. And yeah, but you can, I guess, share more about that as we go along. So you know, that's that's very interesting. I guess before we move on, though, Carrie, I'd actually like to hear more about you. So who is Carrie Thompson, Casey? What made you start a career as a psychologist? Well, in exactly what we just said, just the, the a fascination with understanding these phenomena that can occur in the individual or a group even, um, that they can be changed, they can be assisted or managed in a way that they're not disabling. So even as a teenager on the school bus, I would be so curious, why did that person sit in that chair rather than that chair? And who said the back seat was cool? <laughs> how, do, how do our instincts and behaviours subscribe to this idea? You know, all these aspects of human behaviour and, and why do people crave being part of something that's exclusive? And why do people believe if they exclude others that makes them exclusive? So I, I was just terribly fascinated by um, human behavior and, and why did our, our what motivated us to make certain choices even if we knew those choices weren't the best for us so that stayed with me I think throughout my teen years and I, and I think as I got older I kind of like this idea of working with children um, in that you know it, if there was a way of understanding how you could improve a child's life make them happier you know, wouldn't that be worth knowing? And and mm. more so, what would it be like to be sitting in a room with them when they started to arrive at this place where they felt more content and happier? And I guess that's where I started my early career 
and which was in a shift work role, was working um, for what's now called Autism Queensland. And I worked in a respite centre there and actually managed that respite centre for a little while as well. And that was shift work. And that was long, that was a long time ago. And the shift work was quite um, crazy. And I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be allowed <laughs> these days. I wouldn't even say what hours we would work, um, but way too long. And, and it would depend on um, the children that we had staying with us at the time. Some of the children really struggled with sleep. Um, and so sesometimes that would mean that we'd be there for quite a long shift and, and, wouldn't sleep either that we would be making sure that child was safe and content and 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 wide awake sometimes as they were um you know conducting their evening as if it was right in the middle of the day so um so that gave me a really clear understanding working with children and with autism and their families the impact of disability um but certainly as i got older i worked with adults with disabilities um, as well as working in mental health sector and I actually worked in um, sexual assault for a while as well um, with adult survivors um, and with children and adults, court, that kind of stuff. So there's kind of been a wide range of experience in terms of how we might be impacted, children, young people and adults and families. And as time has gone on, I've looked closer at sharing that information not just one-to-one as a clinical psychologist in a clinical setting referred with people referred by the GP, but also in terms of speaking. Because of that very same idea from way back when I was a teenager, understanding why do we make the choices that we do, even if they're not great for us, and even if we haven't made the choice for something to that happens to us or we experience that or even someone close to us experiences something, how can we how can we work together to get to the places people want to be? How do we get to that happier place? That's really what, you know, that that moment when someone says to me, um, wow, I'd never thought of it that way. And that opens up mm, their experience yeah. and it changes their view of the world in that it's more pleasant for them and it reduces those obstacles in their path, whether it's an organisation who might have a group of staff with low morale or whether it's an individual who's just feeling really stuck and can't escape um, some habits or rules or core beliefs, you know, that that's great, great work to be a part of and I'm so grateful to have worked through um, the, the work that has to be done. You get to master's level and be a clinical psychologist and be able to work with people in that way. Mm, that's that's amazing. You've actually had such an interest in that sort of um, mental health, you know, since you're about 16, I think you mentioned. So well, in my teen time. That's such well, a- I think. I think I wanted to be an actress at some point <laughs> and, may, and I think I may have even thought about being a teacher if I really had to. Um, but I remember being quite encouraged to put law on the top of my application for uni and back then you got one opportunity to change that and my first two choices were law. And when we got our, if you want to change, you can change now, I did and I changed the first, because we've got six choices, I changed the first four to psychology and I was very lucky to get into my first choice, which was to do psychology at Griffith University in Brisbane. So, so yeah, so I think the speaking that I do now is really great because it gives me an opportunity to be a teacher and maybe a little an bit act- of an actress. <laughs> actress yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but at my, to my very bone, um, yeah, human behaviour is and cognition and, and feelings are what I love to to work with and as I said assist people to to change I certainly don't do the work um, I just hear the story and draw on 
training and experience to su- make suggestions, evidence-based suggestions, um, about how to treat that particular way of thinking or behaving or both to improve how they feel. Mm, fascinating, fascinating. So if there's, I guess, for somebody that is never really, you know, familiar with even the term psychologist, how would you explain to a newcomer what exactly is a, is a psychologist? What do you do? What type of help do you provide for your patients? You've obviously run through it a bit already, but maybe perhaps if you go into a little bit more detail. I think that the confusion for the public is the differentiation between counsellor, psychologist and perhaps psychiatrist. And so counsellor is not a regulated title. Um, There are some organisations like the Australian Counselling Association where you can be a clinical counsellor and that's a regulated title if you're a member of that organisation. I think you get clinical membership, but it's not regulated through the um, Australian Health Professionals Board or APRA. Um, So that agency regulates the use of health titles or some specific health professions. Um, So counsellor is not a regulated title as such under that particular banner. So you could do an eight-week course and you could become a counsellor. Or you could do wow. a th- okay. or you could do a three year degree and become a counselor. So okay. that's why it's really helpful for people to investigate the education and training and experience. Now that's not to say one's better than the other um, in terms of an eight week counselor versus that's it's not my sort of role to comment on the validity of that. But mm. in terms of speaking about psychologists, um, in order to be a registered psychologist and use that title, psychologist, um, with APRA, you need to complete six years of training. And that's either as four years of university, including an undergraduate and at least one year postgraduate, and then two years supervised experience. It's now transitioning to be five years of university and one year supervised experience. Or the other route is to do uh three years undergraduate, one year postgraduate and a two-year master's qualifications. And completing the master's qualifications gives the psychologist what we call an area of endorsement. So it's like a specialty, so to speak, and that they can be quite different areas um, but, there's, but limited within, I think it's nine. I could be wrong. But so, for example, sports psychology is one educational and developmental psychology is another organisational psychology. Um, you can be a counselling psychologist. Uh, clinical psychologist, and there's a, a few others. Like, you, you can go to the Australian Psychological Society website, and you can have explore those there. Now, coming to a psychiatrist, they're uh, a specialist in mental health as well, but their background is in medicine. So they may have done a medical degree and then specialised in psychiatry, mental mm. health, and associated mm-hmm. medications. So that's the distinction between those titles. So there's psychologists, then there's endorsed psychologists. So they will use a title like counselling psychologist, even though all psychologists do counselling. Counselling psychologists have done a master's in psychology. Um, That was my first master's. And then, um, and psychiatry is that medical background. So that's the difference. And again, um, it's, it's great to see that there's many people out there who may not, um, know how to choose. I mean, it's always important to to check with the health professionals agency to see if they are registered. Um, and anyone can do that. They can go to, I think it's ahpra.org, A-H-P-R-A.org, and you can put in somebody's name and you can check what their area of endorsement is or that they are indeed a registered health professional. Uh, so that's the same for like chiropractors, I think traditional Chinese medicine and allied health like physiotherapy and things like that are, are in that particular area. 
Mm, okay. So, yeah, so there's just such a vast difference, isn't there? And as you say, everyone can, um, yeah, use different titles, which is very um, confusing for the average person. It is. And it's really what do you need? I mean, mm. it, it depends on what your needs are. Um, and that's something that you can discuss with your family and friends and perhaps your health professional can discuss what what your needs are. So you don't necessarily have to have a diagnosable mental health disorder to see a psychologist and be assisted, you know, particularly in the context of organisational psychology that works a lot with organisations. Um, but at the same time, you know, it might be beneficial for someone to see a counsellor, you know, particularly marriage counselling, that can be done by a psychologist mm. or someone who has spe- specialised in relationship counselling for quite some time can be very beneficial as well. Mm. Okay, interesting. Very interesting. In, um, I guess, in our work environment, many of us experience moments of stress and anxiety. I, I can definitely say within my 20 years, I've certainly had moments there where um, I really felt everything was getting on top of me. Um, yes. what, what advice could you give our listeners to help them whenever they may be experiencing, um, you know, something like a panic or an anxiety attack whilst at work? Okay. So experiencing anxiety at, my, at work might be what we talked about before. You might feel that in your body. So you might feel nauseous. You might feel lightheaded. Um, some muscle tension and a bit of difficulty thinking clearly. Whereas with panic, it, it's a bit more, let's say, a blown up version of that. So there might even be rapid breathing, heart pulsing, feeling like it's racing, um, sweating, um, distortions in hearing. And that's because of the activation of our sympathetic nervous system to protect us from perceived threats. So we get activated into a state you might have heard of that fight or flight where our body is perceiving a threat, our body and mind is perceiving a threat, much like it believes there's a lion chasing you. Even though the lion chasing you might be a deadline at work, it might even be a bully at work. It could be both. It could be um, just lots of demands or one significant demand. And as you perceive that threat, your body gets activated into this fight or flight state, driving you to move. And that adrenaline and cortisol courses through your body, giving you that sense of feeling physically agitated and that you need to move or activate yourself in a way that gets you out of that situation, so flight, or that you stand up for yourself and may become quite uh, aggressive in in terms of surviving that situation. But if you're not being chased by a lion, you can see how that can (laughs) cause a problem in the workplace. Um, If it's a a, a difficult person that you might have a strained relationship with in the office and they might push your buttons a bit that day and fight or flight gets activated, you might find yourself becoming very avoidant. So going outside for a smoke, dare I say it, or finding ways to not interact with others um, or it may come a bit later when you get home. It might be excess alcohol consumption, gambling, overeating or even undereating, shopping, all ways in which we feel as though we're getting distance from our threats or it might be more the fight side. So again, there's no line to kick and punch and scratch but we might all but do that with our colleague and we might find ourselves getting verbally aggressive or even physically aggressive, feeling very agitated towards the fight option. So that might be what you're experiencing. So the goal here would be then to deactivate that without denying that. So 
part of calming down that physiological arousal, that response, that activation, is to calm ourselves down. And one of the fastest ways we know to calm down that physical arousal is our relaxation response, which is triggered by our breathing. So slowing that breathing down. So in through the nose for about three seconds and out the mouth for about five seconds, doing that three times can be a bit of a start on calming down your body. Checking in with what you're saying to yourself. I mean, if you're saying to yourself, just say it's a mean employee who's been really nasty to you um, and let's just call it mean Betsy. If Betsy comes up to you and gives you a foul look and you're feeling very activated, you know, saying to yourself, I'm going to get her one day and she drives me crazy and I can't stand to be in this office anymore, it kind of just drives fight or flight even more. So checking in with what you're saying. So doing the breath and saying, Mean Betsy is quite a bit mean, but I need to resolve this. Perhaps I need to check through the steps at work, even though I know this might sound really boring, but step through the steps <laughs> at work on your conflict resolution. Um, what are the ways to manage it rather than having to painfully bear what's going on with you and Betsy? I think the other thing is, is redirecting yourself as well. So again, be careful not to deny it. Acknowledge that Betsy is actually quite mean and it is impacting you. But taking steps to work on that and resolve it. And while you're waiting for your boss to come in and help you with the conflict resolution, either now or later, focus on doing the work that you do well. Getting back on track, even though it's really tricky because your thoughts might keep drifting back to Betsy. And, you know, if you told her what you really thought of her, what you would say and all these, this chatter that keeps you stuck in that activated fight or flight. Trying to take that breath, talk to yourself calmly, acknowledge that it's painful but you're working on it and then focus attention back on the task that you need to fulfill for your work that day. Maybe it's to go and have fun too. Mm, I love that. I think, um, yeah, the breath is incredibly um amazing at calming that uh, that nervous system down as you were saying before the sympathetic nervous system and getting it back more into the parasympathetic mode where you know we were sort of more resting I certainly remember a time at work when I think we had multiple flight cancellations and and all of a sudden we've got about 250 people standing in front of us and there's only three of us behind the desk the phones are ringing people are screaming at us the stenos are going off and I just I do I remember hearing it at some point about the breathing so I just started to do what you actually just suggested um, then Carrie and just started to breathe and and the beauty of that is the breathing is no one can actually see you doing it that's (laughs) right you're not actually doing anything differently from an external perspective but it really just calms you down and it just helps you to just do one thing at a time and I guess get gain a little bit more clarity and situations too and when you're referring to Betsy um, yeah I guess it sort of helps us to kind of take a a better picture of the whole situation well this is why smokers feel relaxed because they're deep breathing for three to five minutes because we know that nicotine is a stimulant yes yeah yeah so the cigarette the cigarette can't calm you down but because of the ritual of deep breathing and usually removing yourself from a situation like i'm going for a smoke that that's what achieves that sense of relaxation because you've got out of something and because you've committed to focus on something and you're breathing more steadily in a more controlled way Mm, lovely excellent actually just one thing I also wanted to to mention that you were talking about our our perception Carrie yeah because that that alone is a, a 
completely different ball game as well, isn't it? Because our our perceptions of a stressful situation, we've you know two, um, you know one of major event can happen, but three people can react to that event in completely different situations because of our perception of stress one person might go well you know it is what it is and the other one's you know a little bit anxious about it and then the third person's just gone into absolute meltdown mode is there a you know can we change our perceptions a little bit obviously what you've just discussed is one of those elements but is absolutely yeah. <laughs> that's my that's my bread and butter <laughs> okay um but probably okay. the hardest part is identifying those core beliefs um and there and this is where psychologists as human behavior experts don't just look at our our mind we look at how that then influences how we behave so often a scenario is discussed in therapy sessions where you've got three people waiting for a bus but the bus doesn't stop and the first person you know slams their briefcase on the ground and jumps up and down and all the papers go out flying everywhere and he's red in the face and furious and the middle person you know drops to the ground and starts weeping and saying, you know, that's my luck, the bus is always late or doesn't stop. And the third person says, great, now I've got an opportunity to go and get myself a coffee before the next (laughs) bus arrives. You know, so the same thing happened to all three people, Mm -hmm. but how they perceived that, how they they behaved was influenced by their core beliefs, um, the stresses applied to them that day and how they interact with each other. So if the first guy's core belief is that, everything is about being explosive and the everything is about the external world influencing them and they've got no control, then it, they might respond that way. And the second person might be more inner world. They might believe that everything's always their fault and never goes their way anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. the third person, obviously much more relaxed, um, might be aware that they're going to be late for work but that's not something they can change in the moment but perhaps to take advantage of those extra few moments to go for a quick walk grab a coffee and come back so yeah so our our core beliefs about ourselves our world um influence the behaviors that that manifest particularly when we're under stress and once we become aware of those and that can actually be the trickiest part is really knowing what are the maladaptive core beliefs that we might have about ourselves you know someone you might believe they're unlovable. And so someone might say, hey, I think you're pretty cute. Would you like to come out on a date with me? And the person, although they would love to, says no because they believe ultimately they're not lovable. So, Mm. you know, but it might not be obvious to them Mm. in that first instance because they're functional, they're getting on with life. It's not disabling them in any way. But when they get really down, they if they can do some work on themselves, build that self-knowledge, they can get to that place where they go, you know what, I think I unhelpfully think that I'm unlovable. Not that they are actually unlovable. It's a thought that they have that prevents them from behaving in ways to get them closer to where they want to be. It doesn't mean they are unlovable. It just means they believe they are unlovable. Mm, the old negative self-talk, mind chatter going on in the head which is driven by those deeper core beliefs that are sometimes mm. tricky to access. Ah, okay, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, that's yeah, it's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Sure is. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might need a session with you. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, a slightly, I guess, um, still on the same topic but a little bit to, to the difference. According to, um, I was just reading somewhere, according to the World Health Organization, depression will replace heart disease in terms of cost by 2020. That's just mind-blowing. What are your thoughts on this, Carrie? 
Well, I think this is, again, um, I might be a bit controversial here, but this is where I think people don't always understand the role of psychologists and the and our understanding of our how our physical health plays a role in our mental health as well and vice versa. And so many people out there believe that they have cures for depression, but what they need to understand is the, the mechanism of what the research tells us can be helpful in terms of depression. So one of the biggest things we know that are very helpful, and there's a lot of research out there, so I encourage people who are going she's wrong, please go and read the research first. The research tells us that behavioural activation is critical in terms of improving depression. What behavioural activation means is that that individual takes active steps to improve their circumstances or health. Now, that might mean for someone who has severe depression, it might mean getting out of bed. It might mean getting out of bed, having a shower and getting dressed. It might mean going to work but at lunchtime going for a walk so there's different levels of how this behavioral activation might work but where I get a little bit concerned is when people say if you do this particular thing or you do that particular thing that thing directly cures people's depression Mm. but when you look at it the mechanism that actually provided it provided it I don't think that worked (laughs) (laughs) provided I know what you mean I know provided the 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 helpful aspects is that that person took action to improve their health. So if someone starts eating foods differently, and you know I'm all about food and mood and all these things that help, but by improving what you eat, for example, of course that's going to improve people's depression because they're actively working towards something that they weren't doing before. Whether the type of food makes a difference, I hope so because I want people to be able to improve their mood through what they eat. But sometimes it's just improving from where they were. So obviously in the case of anxiety, for example, if you're eating a lot of stimulant foods like high sugar, caffeines, things like that, that's going to exacerbate that anxious agitation. Mm. Similarly for depression, if someone eats a whole bunch of starches and sugars in the morning, it's likely to increase their insulin response and then drop them like hotcakes. And so that flatness and fatigue can also exacerbate the fatigue and low mood that comes with depression. Is that making sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. My ears are just hooked in. (laughs) (laughs) So definitely. Yeah. It 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 is about the efficacy, just the fancy word for saying the belief we have in ourselves to get results. So if I follow a new healthy way of eating, not necessarily a diet and I start to feel better, it gives me more efficacy to keep going with that. Mm. And that starts to improve my mood and that unfolds in healthy ways over time. So I'm, I know that there's people out there that advocate for certain things and I think that's great. If that works for that person, that's great. But don't dismiss the role of mental health and psychology in improving that because of that behavioral activation because sometimes whole families will activate around that individual to help them with these new health goals which of course activates their social supports which of course improves their mood as well. Mm. So I guess what you're saying it's in order to treat something like depression it's definitely very multifactorial. There's so many things that could be behind it. And it has to be person-centered. So Mm. that person sitting in front of me, how are they sleeping? How Mm. are they eating? What's their work environment like? What's their social environment like? What are their – do they have financial stresses? 
Um, do they exercise regularly? Do they meditate? Do they do yoga, stretch? You know, do they spend three hours on a commute where they're listening to the news? You know, which can have an impact on someone's anxiety levels. Mm. You know, if someone says, oh, I don't watch the news, I ask them why and sometimes they hesitate and they'll say because I can't tolerate it and that's a red flag for anxiety. Ah, okay. Doesn't mean they have anxiety but yeah. it, it's one of those factors that we add into our, our looking at the model or that perfect storm that came together to lead to our diagnosis. Mm. So that's why one particular factor shouldn't be looked at on its own and one particular aspect of that individual should be looked at its own, on its own. And even though they might have some really dysfunctional core beliefs, they might have numerous amount of resources that mean that that doesn't take effect in a negative way. But if they have a lot of core beliefs, they're socially isolated, poor diet, limited self-care, barely move except to go out the front, get in the car, drive to work, sit all day, get back in the car, drive back home, come inside, make their frozen dinner and sit on the couch – not that there's anything wrong with that, but if that person comes to me and says, I'm, I'm experiencing really low mood, I'm like, great, you know, not great that they've got low mood, mm. but wow, we've got a platform to work from. Mm. What if we just changed one element there? Mm. What if you go for a walk at lunchtime and make your lunchtime meal the most nutritious meal you can? And what if you made lunchtime a walk, the most nutritious meal you can, and you invite someone along? We start to add those factors in. Mm. I love that. That's, yeah, that's fascinating. I, yeah, that's all this sort of stuff's music to my ears because I very much, yeah, love the holistic approach, looking at every little piece to the puzzle of what, you know, gets us to where we are um, yes. at that moment. So, oh, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, what keeps you interested in psychology, I suppose? Um, Carrie, I mean, I can certainly hear it from your voice. You're very passionate about it. Well, I think it, the. Uh, being an Australian clinical psychologist, just the breadth of research that comes out from um, PhD students and researchers oh, okay. around Australia, there's some really amazing research that comes out, particularly, as you said, looking at that holistic perspective. So looking at the way in which um, what we eat affects how we behave, you know, the effect of um, our sleep quality on the progression of disease and mental health, um, cancer, quality of life. You know, there's so many aspects of our health and well-being that psychologists contribute to. So that from a broader perspective, but also back to what I said earlier, it's having that, that child, that teenager or that mum or dad or even a whole room full of employees from an organisation in front of me and seeing them sit back and go, huh, I never thought of it that way. Mm. What if I just added these things in that my day might just flow a little more easily and it might just be a little bit more comfortable and I might just feel a bit more connected socially? You know, that's what it's all about, that that seeing that, that, that newfound knowledge and opportunity. That's totally what lights me up. I, I just love to see that and the possibility and the potential in people. Love it. Just giving them that different perspective and then the light bulb moment comes on, yes. that sort of thing. Yeah, well, that would yes. be very rewarding. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Wonderful. And so I guess what's been the biggest lesson you've learnt about stress, anxiety and depression through your practice as a clinical psychologist, Carrie? Well, I think from a treating angle um, is that whoever presents in front of me, it's about the difficulties in, in their world. And it's not about me judging or comparing that to anybody else's experience. So what on paper might seem trivial or 
absolutely catastrophic, that's not for me to decide. It's how that person perceives that mm. dilemma that they're facing and that's not not measurable. It's them telling me the impact of that, not me deciding what the impact might be. And that's across all three, the stress, anxiety and depression. So also not underestimating just how low people can feel in terms of their mood and acknowledging that for some people it is really like walking through molasses when they're very depressed and just the idea of getting out of bed is is beyond them and it, it will take time to work through that but if we get the key ingredients happening and with patience hopefully we can get to where we need to go as a team to reach their mental health goals i think as a person what i've realized is that health professionals can have a real blind spot in terms of their own stress, anxiety, depression, um, wanting to appear unblemished and perfect and completely in health all the time. Um, and we can be blind to what is negatively impacting us. I know for myself that um, I've struggled with managing stress and just when I think I've got a handle on it, another layer gets thrown in. But I know that experience is not unique to me, you know, that many people experience that. So apart from the biggest lesson about not underestimating the impact people's problems have on them and, and not comparing, it's also never underestimate people's resilience and what they can survive. And my goodness, working with children, I have learned just how amazing we can be and what we can survive, what we can endure and what we can go on to thrive and, and truly reach our potential and then some. Mm. Fantastic. I think from a shift working's perspective too, to a certain degree, we have to, um, you know, have that a certain amount of mental resilience to be able to endure just working in a shift working role because it's it's so taxing physically mentally emotionally psychologically everything that um built being able to find ways to build our resilience um, mentally in the workplace could certainly go a long way with helping us to uh, in um, i guess continue in in a career um as a shift worker so um yeah that's Fantastic. Thanks, Carrie. Um, well, I guess in closing, is there anything else, stress, anxiety and depression that we haven't covered that you'd like to add? So well, I think, yeah, I think um, just just to make sure that if, if any particular individual is concerned about themselves or even a family member, it's really important to get them along to their health professional to have a chat and maybe they might look at referral. Um, but I think it's also really important if you're part of an organization and you want to help foster resilience in your staff that you contact people like myself um, or Audra or other people to, to come in and deliver workshops to help build that resilience up um, in the individuals in your workplace or large groups or find out what's going on um, in your area that people might be helping in terms of identifying your at-risk times for stress mm. um, or at-risk factors like shift work. But definitely go and talk to your health professional if you're a bit worried and they'll let you know about what resources or or people are around to provide support in your community. Fabulous. And what's your, been your key piece of advice that you could share with our listeners in overcoming or at least reducing the effects of the conditions that we've been talking about? I think it has to be 
and, and perhaps a lot of your guests have said this, I think it's just sticking with the basics first. Be honest with yourself about what you're consuming, what you're eating, um, mm. what you're drinking, um, making sure that you're eating good, healthy food, the best choices you can regularly throughout the day. Even if you're shift working, trying to have consistent eating times, um, managing your sleep, working on your sleep hygiene, um, making sure that you drink good quality water, Making time to move, even if it's short bursts of movement, even if it's a 10-minute walk at lunchtime, walk as fast as you can for maybe three minutes of that um, or jog up some stairs every now and then through the day. But really important and people need to to remember who they are, what what makes them feel most like themselves. You know, what what is it that they can do, whether it's, you know, scrapbooking or it's a plane flying over, so I'm going to shut my window, um, <laughs> whether it's, you know, as I said, scrapbooking or crochet or model aeroplanes or sailing, just making sure that they find the time as regularly as possible to do that thing that makes them feel most like themselves because that's the first thing, particularly when women say to me, I can't remember who I am. It's like, well, what did you love to do? What did you love to do with your time? Mm. And they might say, well, I love to paint. It's like, well, you know what? Find some time. Get your skills, your spits together, your paints and your canvas and just spend 30 minutes painting even if you don't feel like it and just see if you get a bit of momentum. So the basics in terms of what we all know about health and well-being, food, water, movement, sleep, but also play and have fun doing those things that light you up. Mm. Oh, nice. I like that last bit because I think a lot of us have – um, you know, we're sort of pushing the hobbies aside. Where everyone's just so busy all the time. We're we're just running literally twenty four seven, and uh, you know, trying to get ahead and and paying bills, and you know, going to work every day, and feeling like they've got to do this and that and this and that, and the the kind of um, the stuff that we enjoy kind of gets pushed to the side a little bit. Whereas really the self-care needs to be pushed to the top a little bit higher to kind of help reduce that chances of burnout later on. So, Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Do not underestimate how powerful the breath work is mm. and how powerful acknowledging this does hurt, working on solving the problem and then go home and indulge in those things that you love to do that are healthy, like walking the dog, patting the dog, going for a swim, picking fruit off the trees, drawing whatever is yours, do it. Mm. Beautiful. Love that. Thank you so much. Um, well, how can people find you, Carrie, if they're wanting to learn more about you and what uh, and your consultations and the workshops that you deliver? Do you have a website at all? I do. CarrieThompsonCasey.com. So that's Thompson without a P and all together, all lowercase. So CarrieThompsonWithoutAPCasey.com. And yes, I work clinically, but that's usually with a referral from a GP. But I also run speaking events throughout, all over the country. And I also uh, go to consult with organizations and run events at organizations, particularly health organizations um, all over the country as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you so very much for joining us today, Carrie. It's been, it's been great to get your professional opinion and perspective on such an important topic because so many people tend to suffer in silence and try and work through these things on their own. So it's really uh, great to know that there is so much support out there to help people who may be suffering like things like stress, anxiety and depression in various forms. So thank you very much. No, thank you for the work that you're doing with Shift Workers. It's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks very much, Kerry. Well, that's it for the very first, um, sorry, for the edition of the Healthy Shift Worker podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback. 
And there are many ways you can do this via my Facebook page, The Healthy Shift Worker, through my website, healthyshiftworker.com, or you can visit The Wellness Couch at thewellnesscouch.com and leave a comment there. If you've enjoyed the show, please feel free to share it with other shift workers who you think may benefit. And you can also leave us a five-star rating in the iTunes store, which will help me to spread the Healthy Shift Worker message to shift workers and organisations all around the world. If you'd like access to more free resources, including my newsletter, just visit my website, healthyshiftworker.com, and you can enter your name and email address. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening. Until next time, may you continue to be as healthy as you possibly can be, despite working 24-7. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.